0: We're going to be jumping into <clears throat> John chapter 10 this morning. We started chapter 10 a couple of weeks ago. And uh, a couple of highlights is this is where Jesus mentions a couple of these or brings to light a couple of these I am statements. He, I am the door of the sheep. He's the door of the sheepfold. Uh, and I am the good shepherd. And... Uh, He's continuing on in in verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Uh, It picks up in an event that takes place shortly after what we've studied already, but 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 there's still questions and there's still comments and things like that coming uh, on the on the heels of what had transpired uh, there uh, at that time. So beginning with verse 22. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I in the father. Again, They sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again uh, across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John uh, did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true, and many believed in him there." Well, one of the things I wanted to note this morning is this: is that as corrupt a sect of the Pharisees actually is, believing that they, in fact, speak on God's behalf uh, and that sort of thing; that they are the religious leaders of Israel, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, We understand that they were a very corrupt sect, and so many of them are denying. Everything that is going on here what Jesus is saying what Jesus is doing and that sort of thing and it's a measure really of the hardness of the human heart uh, and I would challenge us with the idea this morning we, we should never consider the idea or believe for a minute that, that these things are way beyond us uh, you know, that there's still enough sin in us that without Christ having hold of us that we would drift away more easily than perhaps we think that we might. But even in the midst of the ranks of these Pharisees, there are those who are beginning to wonder. There are those who are beginning to question. How is it that this man says what he says? And and how is it that he does what he does? If if he's not sent by God, how can anyone do the things that this man is doing? So even in the ranks of the Pharisees, some were beginning to question the validity of what was going on here. Some were saying, these are not the works of one who was oppressed by a demon. Mary's still talking about, they're talking about the, uh, the healing of the blind man that took place recently. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? In other words, they were looking at reality of what had happened, and they didn't see it matching up with the conclusion that so many people were coming to. And we understand that Nicodemus, earlier on, was beginning to question these things and to begin to consider Jesus. And we know that in the end, that Nicodemus was one of those who took the body, along with Joseph of Arimathea, Jesus' body, and they took it and they placed it in the grave. There are others there that are wondering, that are questioning. And who knows how many of these guys eventually would come to faith in Jesus Christ. But I think it would be silly for us to conclude that Nicodemus was the only one of them. Jesus is back in Jerusalem now again. Another time to celebrate a feast. This is a feast of the dedication. It commemorated the restoration of the temple that took place during the intertestamental period, during the days of the Maccabees, which most of us know almost nothing at all about. It's not a part of history that the Bible covers, so what we know of it comes from extra-biblical history. But it took place in December, during the wintertime, One of the interesting things about it is is this is not one of the annual feasts. that was uh, specified and certified by Scripture. One of the interesting things is this, is even though that was not true, that Jesus was there to celebrate it, which validates its genuineness. It would be something like this. Very often people today wonder why we celebrate Christmas. Because the Bible never tells us to do that. There is no thou shalt celebrate Christmas. That we do it anyway. How could we do anything less than to celebrate Christmas? This is the the feast that eventually was renamed Christmas. Hanukkah, that's why it's celebrated right around the same time that we celebrate Christmas by the Jewish people. Jesus is walking in the colonnade of Solomon, which was a a covered porch that was adjacent to the temple complex. One of the interesting things about it is uh, is we're told in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, that this is one of the places that the early Christians in Jerusalem began to gather for worship. And Jesus happens to be there on this particular day. They say to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus at this point has not made, as far as we know, we don't have any record of it in Scripture, that he has not made a public statement of the fact that he indeed is the Messiah or the the Christ would be the the Greek equivalent of Messiah. He has left people more or less to draw their own conclusions. And some people were looking and they, they were listening. And they, the things that they saw and the things that they heard. They began to conclude on their own that there's good reason to believe that this man in fact is the long awaited Messiah. The one that God was going to send to deliver the Jews. The Christ. Christ, Messiah, Christ is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew uh, Messiah. Jesus has not come out publicly and announced the fact that he is the Christ. He has, however, told a few people that. For instance, if you look all the way back in John uh, chapter 5, the Samaritan woman at the well. She's speculating on who he is, and this is what he says. Well, she says, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ, and Jesus said to her, guess what? I who speak to you am he. There's very good reason as things are unfolding in the Gospel of John, we're turning very quickly to the, to the death and the resurrection, etc., of Jesus. Here already in the book of John, and we're only halfway through it, a good bit of the book is consumed with the final days of Jesus and things that happen afterwards. It's also very quite likely that Jesus has had his conversation with the apostles at Caesarea Philippi. Where Jesus has said to them specifically, He asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah and one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. More and more people are waking up to the reality that Jesus indeed is the Messiah, the Christ. Certain Jews at this point ask him directly, tell us plainly if you are the Christ. Now we know that they are pressing him we know that they're asking this question not because they really want to know but they see it as a means to trap him or so they think it's not the last time they will ask him this question the high priest will say to him in the weeks to come i assure you by the living god tell us if you are the christ the son of god to which jesus will publicly proclaim i am and that's not all he will say he will say you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power in other words even though you deny me now there will come a time when you will no longer be able to do that when you will be confronted with the truth in such a manner that you will no longer be able to deny that I am indeed God's man Everyone who is confronted with Jesus must do something with him. I guess some people ignore. It goes in one ear and out the other. But ultimately it comes down to this, is people have one of two choices, and that is either to deny Jesus or to accept Jesus. There is no middle ground even though there are a lot of people I think that they think they can, they live in that, that middle ground where they, do, they don't do either one. They don't outly, uh, outwardly deny Christ but at the same time they don't outwardly accept Christ either and that's a reflection of what's going on inside of them. How many people have been confronted with Christ Jesus at some place in their lifetime? We understand there are people in the world that never will be, unfortunately, and there have been in history. C.S. Lewis concluded this that uh, that when it comes to, uh, when people are confronted with Jesus, they have only three options, and one of those is to conclude that Jesus was a liar. Or he was a lunatic, he really believed that he was who he said he was, but he really wasn't. Or that he was Lord. C.S. Lewis was a great Christian. But I'm going to interject what I think is a fourth option. And what I would say is this, this, and I think this is probably a rather significant group of people. There are those who simply choose to ignore him. And what I would speculate is there are a great deal of people in... The good old U.S. of A. and in this world today. That's where they find themselves. They've heard something of him. They know something of him. They haven't utterly and absolutely denied him. But at the same time, they have not accepted him either. They know that perhaps uh, he is, and perhaps one day they will have to engage with him. But for now, it's not convenient. They don't want the inconvenience that they know association with Jesus will inevitably cost them. They understand that becoming a Christian means very significant life changes. That they quite frankly just are not willing to make. And so they leave Jesus there at arm's length. They give him a little thought, perhaps, at funerals and things like that. But for the most part, they keep him in the closet. I would estimate that there are a lot of people in our culture today. They know enough about Jesus to understand that association with him means giving up and giving in. And they have some sense that one of these days they will have to deal with him. But for now, quite honestly, they just don't want to be bothered with it. They know that he's there in the background, but for now they're perfectly satisfied acting and pretending as if he is not. I can tell you all of this because that was me. And I would imagine a lot of you are nodding your head right now and you're saying, you know what, that was me as well. That I had some sense of him. I had some sense of his holiness and et cetera and et cetera. And I just was not willing to accept his lordship and give Up and give in to him because I knew that my life was going to have to change unbelievably so, and I was not willing to make that sacrifice because I liked things the way they were. And so people go on and on and You know, we live in a nation where, you know, know, the United States is the greatest nation that ever existed on the planet Earth. And I want to say something to you this morning that you're not going to hear most people saying, and that is this, is because of one reason. That is because Christ was so central to its founding. That Christianity is what has made America great and makes it stand out as being the freest nation that people have ever experienced in history. Christ has blessed us. And if it was not for him, and if not for Christianity, we would be just like everybody else's been Everyone out for himself. The United States is not a Christian nation. And as time is going by, it seems it looks... Very much less and less like one of those would look like. Human secularism has gotten a stranglehold on so many in our nation and and its philosophies are so contrary to the truth and the teaching of scripture and the teachings of Christ. We look out of the world around us, it really does look very much like at the point we're at now that we're losing. Right? I mean, there's all kinds of things going on today that just make you cringe to think about it, and they're commonly accepted as being okay, and we remember a time when no one would have believed that. Or almost no one would have believed it. We also know this, that the church, to some degree, and we're talking about this in Sunday school, has also drifted way off track. You know, those things, those dear truths, those, those wonderful truths, those amazing truths that came forth in the Protestant Reformation, there are so many people today in the church that have never even heard of any of it. Things like grace, effectual calling. Scripture alone? Christ alone? I mean, there are a lot of people out there today who claim the name of Christ, who really believe that they have, they've basically done some of it themselves, and Christ has just made up the difference. Because they're fundamentally good people. That's just not the gospel. You've lost sense of what the true gospel is. And that is we are all sinners. We've all fallen from grace. We're all dead in our sins. Unless the life giver breathes spiritual life into our otherwise dead spirit. God saves, we don't save. For those who are truly His sheep hear His voice and they follow Him wherever He leads them. Because God the Father has given them to Him especially and specifically. They are His precious possession. They are those He came to save from themselves. To make them into the children of the living God who will not be snatched out of their Father's hand. One of the most interesting things about this particular passage, and you may have just passed right over it. In verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. It's almost like a footnote that comes at the end of this. There are people who would say this. I was sitting in, in a restaurant in Donellan years ago, and it was at a Chamber of Commerce breakfast, and I was sitting with some people. I don't even remember who were at the table with me, but there was a, we were sitting in a booth, and there were people in the booth right behind us that were carrying on a conversation, and based upon what was being said, it was pretty clear to me that one of them was a Jehovah's Witness. And basically, they were saying that this whole concept of Jesus Christ as being you know, the, the third person or the second person of this trinity, that whole teaching is completely foreign from Scripture. You understand that that's a big difference between Christians and Jehovah's Witnesses. We believe in the trinity. They don't. It should make you cringe when one of them. I was talking with not too long ago, and they're saying, "Well, I go to the church. The church I go to is Jehovah's Witnesses." I'm thinking, "You ain't going to the church because you deny the very center of the church." But there are people who believe this, that the, that the church basically just fabricated, they, they, they developed this doctrine of the Trinity that just is not found in Scripture. But what Jesus introduces here is Scripture itself that indicates that there is multiplicity within God. He quotes Psalm 82, verse 1. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of gods, he holds judgment. Now, the only way we could possibly interpret that is this, is that there actually are multiple gods. But that's not the point Jesus is making here, and that is that there is a plurality within the Godhead, what we call the Trinity, three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is just the beginning of Jesus. Jesus is developing this doctrine. You need to understand this. It's not something the church came up with. Jesus is introducing it here, and he's giving it to them little tidbits at a time because they know it's going to be something hard to believe. Then in the Great Commission... Jesus, the words of Jesus, he mentions specifically the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. I wanted to jump up in that restaurant and say, you are wrong, you are dead wrong. That the doctrine of the Trinity is in Scripture. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ himself is one of the ones who shows it to us. Paul in a number of places. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 4-6. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The Apostle Peter in his first epistle. Chapter 1, verse 2. The doctrine of the Trinity is based on scripture. Have no doubt. These people are torn and you have to give them a little bit of credit for that because they're having a hard time figuring out how it is that someone can heal someone that was born blind, which undoubtedly Jesus has done at this point, And at the same time, not be someone that is specially anointed by God to do something like that. Jesus says here in verse 38, Even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may understand, that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Trinity. Trinity. Holy Spirit's not mentioned there, but he is in other places. People know this. People know that God's the only one that can do what this fellow's doing. There's no other possible explanation for it. And once again, they try to arrest Jesus. But it's not time yet. Jesus has more to do. He has more people to save. He has more of those sheep to call into the fold. There will come a time when Jesus will, listen to me, when Jesus will allow his arrest in his trial, in his crucifixion. He lets it happen. That time's not yet. number of times we've seen already how they picked up stones and they were going to stone him to death. Now you need to understand that that stoning is one of the principal primary means or methods that was used for executing people in those days. But Jesus is not going to die by stoning. We know that. Jesus knows that. He's not going to be struck down by stones. He is in fact going to die, but He's going to be lifted up on a cross. Jesus leaves Jerusalem again. Almost like he's escaped from their hands another time. I would imagine it probably stirred the pot and just bangered him even more. He snuck out of Dodge again. Returns uh, to Bethany beyond the Jordan where John the Baptist had baptized him some time before that. remember that jesus had very high regard for john and that jesus and john were distant cousins even john the baptist was not a miracle worker like jesus was i mean we have no example that i can think of in scripture where john the baptist actually performed any kind of a miracle But John indeed was a prophet sent by God. And some of the prophets actually did miraculous things. You know, Elijah and Elijah, they both were involved in healing people miraculously. But not all of the prophets were. As far as I know no one in this room is a miracle worker either now, I'm not and I don't think any of you are either if you are please 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 do something for me before you leave so I can see it see John was not a miracle worker like Jesus was but he was indeed a prophet sent by God And people knew it because everything that John had said about Jesus was coming true at this point. And there were many there in that place who were believing in Jesus. As far as I know, as I've said, there's not a single miracle worker here, but at the same time, everyone that is here is a miracle him or herself. If you don't believe that your salvation was an absolute miracle, then you don't know yourself. People out there can doubt whether Jesus continues to do His wonderful miracles among people, but people in here can't doubt it for a minute. It was so encouraging to hear Bruce's voice this morning when I called. You know, I expected this, this weak, sounding, sick voice on the other end of the phone, but it's not what I got at all. I got the, the joyous laughter and joy of a fellow brother in Christ because God had brought him and Peggy through this ordeal and they were bettered on the other side of it because of it. Jesus says in verse 35, the scripture cannot be broken. The scripture cannot be broken. Did you hear that? The scripture cannot be broken. The inerrancy and the infallibility of scripture right there from the mouth of Jesus. why do we have such a high view of scripture because jesus had a high view of scripture the bible in the modern era has been challenged probably more than any time in the past generations of mankind There's an ongoing effort on unbelieving man's part to discredit the Word of God. There are people out there today, that is their determination. They are going to disprove that the Bible is the Word of God. And we have a very high view of Scripture. Why? Because Jesus does. Scripture is God speaking to us. And what we must do is listen to what he says. act on it. and The only way that happens is if we are truly students of the Bible. If you're not a student of the Bible, you're trusting in other people to do something for you that only you can do for yourself. Read it, study it, and pray before you do it. We would never think about starving our body for even a day. Maybe we fast on occasion for a day. But when it comes to the Word of God, the bread of life, sometimes we have a very different perspective. It is vital. It's vital to our life. It's vital to our religion. It's vital for our well-being. It's vital for the well-being of other people. Why is it important to us? Because it was important to Jesus. He is our example in everything. I still make a habit. I've been doing this now for 30-something years. I read through Scripture once a year, the whole Bible. So I've read the Bible probably 35 or more times. And let me tell you something. It still amazes me unbelievably. If you look at my Bibles, they're all marked up, they're underlined, and there's highlighted this, that, and the other, and some people can't even stand to look at them, because it's like I've done some sacrilegious, I I, I marked up the Bible, you can't do that! But you know what amazes me? Is I'll come across a particular verse, and it's underlined, and it's underscored, and it's highlighted, and there's stars all around it, and I'm thinking, I never read that before. (laughs) I don't ever remember reading that before. But what does that say to me? I need it. I've got to rehash it. I've got to go back through it over and over and over and over again. And when I'm done there, then I do it again. We all need to have that mindset. Because living without the Word of God is like trying to live our Physical life without eating. And we know we can't do that. And what I'm telling you this morning is you can't do that when it comes to the Bible either. Because if you don't, if you're not in it, you don't read it, you don't study it, you'll begin to lose it and the next thing you know you're going to drift way off course. So do yourself a favor... Turn off the TV for 10 minutes or whatever else you're doing and pick up your Bible every day and listen to what God has to say to you today.